Welcome to Mission Driven, a conversation about how startups leverage their social mission as competitive advantage. Mission Driven is hosted by Better Ventures, a seed stage venture fund in Oakland, California, backing entrepreneurs using science and technology to address the world's biggest challenges. You can find us on the web at better.bc and on Twitter at Better Ventures. I'm here today with Julie Lean. I think for us, the entrepreneurs that we have seen be most successful in the space are just maniacally driven to solve a pain point and a problem that they've experienced in the real world. And they want to bring a sustainable and scalable tech solution to solving that problem. Julie's a co-founder and managing partner of the Urban Innovation Fund, a venture firm that invests in the future of cities. We've known each other for quite some time now. I feel like we almost grew up together as <laughs> investors. We yeah. both started our firms as accelerators. We both sort of then turned our firms into seed funds. We've now co-invested on three deals together. Welcome, Julie. Thank you, Rick. It's great to be here. So let's start with Urban Innovation Fund. Say uh, just a bit about it. How'd you get started? What's your investing approach? How much progress have you made over the years? Sure. So as Rick mentioned, I'm one of the co-founders and managing partners of the Urban Innovation Fund. We are a venture capital firm investing in startups shaping the future of cities. So we invest in areas like transportation, energy and water, the future of work, all with the goal of growing and scaling to many cities in the U.S. and hopefully beyond. Typically, we get involved at the pre-seed and seed stage. And in addition to providing capital, we also like to emphasize regulatory support since we've seen that be an area of need. In terms of how we got started, as an accelerator, like Rick mentioned, we, um, my co-founder Claire and I launched Tummel, which is an urban ventures accelerator in 2013. Through that, we incubated 38 startups in the urban innovation space. And we really leveraged that track record to launch the Urban Innovation Fund in 2016. Where did the word tumble come from? I've always wondered. <laughs> so tumble is Yiddish. It means a shakeup. We thought we were shaking up city living. All right. Our entrepreneurs. I were. like that. So I think it helps if you give some specific examples of companies because people get a better sense for what you do. Uh, can you maybe mention one or two companies and feel free to mention any one of the three that we've invested in together? Sure. Um, so an example of a company that we've invested in and co-invested in with Better Ventures we were early investors in a company called Ride Report, which is based over in Portland, Oregon. Ride Report is essentially trying to help cities manage the influx of micromobility providers. So when you think of micromobility, we're talking about scooters, dockless bikes, etc. They've seemed to kind of flood cities in a very time-compressed fashion. And Ride Report provides a software solution to help cities manage and regulate compliance with these micromobility providers. I think um, the founder, William, really was captivating to both of our funds, potentially for similar or maybe even different reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> William, I think, came from a really heavy hitting tech background. He was at Square and helped build out Square Wallet. And he really brought that business acumen to a personal passion of his, which was around you know, bike data and micromobility more broadly. And he really wanted to help cities uh, manage the influx of micromobility, specifically in thinking about building out infrastructure like bike lanes. Mm -hmm. And then as he saw the surge of scooters, he really you know, saw this business opportunity of helping cities manage this micromobility usage. I think his background on the business and tech side have been pretty... You know, it was a pretty big reason why both of us jumped in, but he did come with a very strong um, 
personal passion around the bike and micro mobility space as well. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I can't agree more. And how do you think about uh, social impact and or founders who are quote unquote mission driven? Like, What's your take on that? Would you call yourselves a social impact fund? Would you look for founders who are specifically mission-driven? So we don't actually specifically seek out mission-driven founders in the same way that probably Better Ventures does, because I know you guys really think about that from you know a competitive advantage perspective. When we're evaluating startups, we're specifically interested in startups where the founder has experienced a personal pain point and is almost maniacally motivated to solve that pain point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, in many cases, perhaps you could call that person mission-driven, I want to be respectful of our founders because some of them would rather not want to be called impact, right. not touch that moniker with a yeah. 10-foot pole. So, you know, I think for us, the entrepreneurs that we have seen be most successful in the space are just maniacally driven to solve a pain point and a problem that they've experienced in the real world. And they want to bring a sustainable and scalable tech solution to solving that problem. Okay, got it. And so say more about like, don't want to touch impact with a 10 foot pole, because, you know, it sounds like it could be harmful to them, or they're, they're concerned that it would be a disadvantage. And I think we're, we're trying to tease apart the ways it's an advantage, but certainly there are drawbacks, right? And you have to be careful about your word selection and your audience. Yeah, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of time and energy put into, you know, what is impact? What does that mean? Should you be considered impact? And I think the challenge for many founders is that there is still a segment of the population, maybe in the investor community, that thinks of impact as concessionary returns. Mm-hmm. We certainly don't feel that way, but right. I could understand why some founders would be reluctant to right. associate themselves with a pool of capital that they might see as smaller or, you know, essentially there's a huge pot of VC funding. And if you're only going after that, mission-driven or impact pot of funding, it's a much smaller overall Mm. part of the pie. Mm. And so understanding that, I think we certainly feel like we have a pretty rigorous thesis. We are really looking for startups that are enhancing the quality of living in cities. And we think Mm -hmm. that many of our founders are outcomes and mission-driven, but we don't want to put words in their mouth. Right. At the end of the day, I think it's more both for you as a fund and for some of these founders and the way they talk about it, it's more about the term than it is the meaning. If you ask them, you know, are you really passionate about making the world a better place? You might get the answer you're looking for. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I want to be mindful of those dynamics because unfortunately, I think there are funds that are, you know, helping move the conversation and say, you don't need to be a concessionary fund. We want top tier returns and we want, you know, mission-driven, outcomes-driven, whatever you want to call it. But the reality is that the full investment landscape hasn't yeah. caught up to that quite yeah. yet. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the point here is we look at it as an actual advantage and a means of outperformance. And so part of the reason for these yeah. conversations is to tease that apart. Can you think of a couple of examples where being mission-driven or however you would describe it, has uh, sort of supported the success of your portfolio companies, maybe has enabled them to outperform in some way? Yeah, sure. So one example that readily comes to mind, we invested in a company called Milk Stork last year, and they are a breast milk shipping service for breastfeeding traveling moms. And so the premise of this company really came together because of the founder Kate's personal pain point when she had given birth to twins, she went back to work and she was traveling for her job. 
And she found it almost impossible to keep up with the demands of breastfeeding while also traveling. And so what she had a really hard time doing was continuing to breastfeed. She was really committed to trying to do a year of breastfeeding for her twins. Mm. And while she's on the road, it's really hard. So she created Milk Stork. And one thing that we were really compelled by and the reason that we found out about them is we had a number of classmates from business school who had used the product and they were just enamored with the product. They really felt like it wasn't just about the product itself, which was resonating with them, but it was the labeling, it was the ease, the logistics, Mm -hmm. their branding and messaging really resonated with women who were breastfeeding, going back to work and Mm -hmm. experiencing the pain points of being a new mom that's trying to juggle between a career and also having time for her kids and having time to nourish her kids. And so I think we really resonated with the story, the pain points that Mm -hmm. she shared. And it helps when your customers are just ecstatic about Mm -hmm. the product. So she had a really high NPS score. That's a net promoter score among her customers. And now over 200 companies offer Milk Stork as a health and wellness benefit. And so she was really able to translate that personal pain point into one that companies and customers really resonated with. And I think that's a great example of bringing a personal pain point and experience into something that has just been really heavy hitting from a business and financial perspective. So talk more about like the for this founder, do you think over time she will outperform? Like if you if you line up three founders in the same category and you know her depth of passion, her problem insider, do you think she will win because of this kind of uh, personal passion and drive? Without a doubt. I think that the reason any early stage company can win is when their founder is maniacally obsessed with solving this problem. Because if you're not maniacal, how can you weather and withstand all the ups and downs and kind of crappiness of, uh, you know, being through the roller coaster of an early stage Mm -hmm. startup? You Mm -hmm. have to have a lot of stamina, resilience, and just an overarching passion and drive to get through the tough ups and downs that come with a startup environment. And I think she definitely has that. I don't think this is a startup that could have been launched by just anyone. So how about any other thoughts, examples from other facets of entrepreneurship? Sure. So we are both co-investors in a company called BookNook, which is essentially a technology platform to really help kids learn to read. And so they started with trying to take the experience of group reading and really personalizing it and customizing it and trying to scale that ability for young kids in elementary school and now in other age groups to be able to um, get literacy education. I had actually, I don't know if you know this story, but I had actually previously met Michael when I was on the board of a nonprofit called Mission Learning Center. No, I didn't know that. Michael was running a large nonprofit called Reading Partners. Our organization that I was on the board of ended up getting acquired by Reading Partners. Oh, no kidding. And so Michael was seen as this kind of innovative guy in the nonprofit space, which is generally not very acquisitive. There are very rarely mergers of this kind, but there was a huge alignment from a mission perspective and a scale perspective. And Michael was really on the cutting edge. And when I had come across him, I realized that he was something really special. Mm -hmm. And then when Michael decided to start BookNook, his whole theory was around this idea of how do we scale this impact? How do we help kids 
you know, get access to literacy education in a very scalable way that mm-hmm. doesn't just rely on volunteerism, doesn't rely on, you know, people going in person and tutoring. And I think that was what really compelled us, which is he was the ultimate kind of experienced the pain point, saw the problem, was maniacally driven to come up with a solution. And he had, you know, raised $50 million for reading partners, which is massive for mm-hmm. a nonprofit, just mm-hmm. massive. Is really innovative, forward-thinking, but he felt like there was a cap doing this in a nonprofit space as well. And so that was what led him to kind of go the for-profit book nook route. And I, I think he's the perfect example of a founder mm-hmm. who really is so at ease with understanding the education landscape, the pain point. I think the business savvy that he brings to this can help grow and scale it and make it massive there are kind of two schools of thought on it. One is that you want somebody who has a real experience with the problem, like they have worked in a specific industry and they really know it inside and out and they're compelled to fix it. And then the second viewpoint is that, you know, you want somebody who's a total outsider, that they've never touched this industry, that they're not bogged down with the bureaucracy that can be an area like education, for example. In our case, I really think that if you're going to make a dent in this space, you need to understand the way that the education system works, the way that, you know, the classroom operates and, you know, how to integrate a solution because it's not as easy as plopping open a Chromebook and saying, hey, use my app, use, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever technology I provide. Um, I think you need to understand the procurement process. And, you know, Michael really understands that. And I think that's helped him win and helped him kind of grow customers, win customers. I think it would be really hard to do if he didn't have that knowledge. Right. If he was some huge company that's clearly just trying to make money, right. they'd be less likely to win with those. Yeah, with a new product, yeah. I think that yeah. would be true. As we know, of course, building a team and hiring people, especially in the Bay Area, is so hard, so expensive, and it's highly competitive. And it's one of the main jobs of a founding CEO, right? You think mission is something that comes into play there? Without a doubt. I mean, I think that... When it comes to how we help our startups, we get involved in recruiting a lot because it is, frankly, their toughest, one of their toughest challenges as an early stage startup. Usually when we invest, the team is three, four people. And if you're looking to grow to 12 or 13, you're essentially, you know, quadrupling Mm -hmm. your team size. And that's really formative in the time and early stages of a a startup. Mm -hmm. So an example that I can give when it comes to recruiting, um, I think Ride Report, I think they've done a really good job. And one of the reasons that they've done a good job is because William, their founder, he was so personally driven around this idea of how do you help cities when it comes to offering access to bikes, to infrastructure, to really helping spread micro mobility. Mm -hmm. And so I think the passion and the industry insiderness that he brings to Ride Report has helped him higher in a big way. And you need an advocate like the CEO saying, we're going to win. We're going to be a huge company. We're going to take this team of five, six and turn it into a massive team in order to incentivize people to take a lower salary, take you know fewer benefits, give up a stock package that they can't quite offer. And I think that our startups have done that really well because they really deeply believe in what they're doing. Yeah. And not only we're going to win, but we're also going to make sustainable transportation accessible. It's something that it's not just about money necessarily. 
Absolutely. And I think sustainability is at the heart of what William's personal passion is, but he also brings that financial and tech heavy hitterness from mm-hmm. his time at Square right. that I think, you know, is the perfect blend of you've got this passion, this pain point that you've experienced, but you're really bringing, you know, a heavy tech and business savvy to mm-hmm. trying to solve it. So let's turn to how you make your investment decisions and evaluate entrepreneurs. What do you look for in founders? And to what degree would you say this element of passion and mission like weighs versus those other factors? Yeah, I think when people talk about finding startups to invest in, there are three elements that are oftentimes brought up. One is the team, one is the market size, and one is the product. Mm -hmm. I think for us, because we're pre-seed and seed stage investors, the team ultimately ends up being the most critical. Mm -hmm. And for the team to be successful, we really need to have conviction. The founders, the CEO can really execute on their vision and make it a reality. In most cases, the concept is still early stage. You might have a working prototype, you might have some customers, but ultimately it's still very early on in a company's life cycle. And so we need conviction that first, there's enough tenacity that these founders won't give up, that they will run through walls to make this a success. The second element of, of it is really the execution element. And so can you paint that vision of, you know, what is it that we're solving? What is the problem we're working on? Is it a problem worth solving? Sometimes I think there isn't enough attention paid to that. And then having conviction that the founder can actually execute against that vision, whether it be getting paying customers, whether it be bringing a product to life. I think for us, that's really important and ultimately what we base a lot of our decisions on. I don't want to minimize though the role of market and Mm -hmm. product. I think there are, again, different schools of thought in this. We are definitely an investor where we need to have conviction around the product and business model because these kind of things can change. But ultimately, we want to back somebody that we think can have outcomes that are really positive for cities. And so for us, making sure that they're not going to pivot to you know a photo sharing or dating app is pretty important to mm-hmm. us. And then I want to mention market size because we need this to be... you know a major market opportunity. For us, we are a market rate VC fund. We do want top tier returns. And I think oftentimes what happens with impact is one of the reasons it's seen as potentially concessionary is sometimes there's a narrowness to what is described as the market opportunity. Mm-hmm. When you think about the biggest problems in cities from you know access yeah. to transportation, to housing, to getting access to clean water, all of these things are multi-billion dollar problems in and of themselves. And Mm -hmm. so we want companies that can grow and scale their solutions in a really meaningful way. Mm -hmm. How would you rank mission-driven nature or or personal passion for the problem among all these other things? Would you invest in a founder who quite clearly is not like a problem insider and personally passionate about the problem, but you think is really smart and could make a whole pile of money? Hmm. I don't know if I've seen the distinction between mm-hmm. the two. And, you know, I can give an example, which is through Tumble, we backed a company called Chariot, which is a mm-hmm. crowdsourced commuter shuttle company. And when the founder came to us, he was somebody who was the ultimate experienced a pain point and was really maniacally driven to solve yeah. that pain yeah. point. And essentially, the founder and CEO, Ali, he had come from New York. He had moved to San Francisco. He was trying to get from his apartment in the marina to 
his investment banking job downtown in San mm-hmm. Francisco. And he was just appalled by how long the commute took. And so he started this crowdsource pop-up commuter shuttle service. And it was funny because when I think about impact, he was somebody who was just so passionate about solving the problem. Like he could go out there and talk for days about why he's doing it and look at all the commuters that he's helping. I think there are different Mm -hmm. interpretations of what impact is. To me, he's the ultimate mission-driven founder. He was also, you know, obsessed with making it a money-making service from the get-go. So he started charging even before he had a tech product. And he was just driving a van (laughs) up and down uh, San Francisco himself, which again, ultimate insider personal pain point that he experienced. But I don't know if everyone would call him an impact entrepreneur. I would definitely call him a mission-driven entrepreneur. I think impact is in the eye of the beholder, probably. Mm. He's a very sales-driven CEO. And I don't know if I see a kind of splintering of can you be somebody who is mission-driven without mm-hmm. having that kind of maniacal focus right. and without having some kind of business savvy to make that a reality. Okay. But in the case of Chariot, though, and Ali, there's some element of authenticity in his drive. Because yeah. all, all founders at that early stage are super pumped up, right? But how long will that last? And I yeah, think some might get fair. two or three years down the road, hit a wall, couple fights with their co-founder and maybe I'm out. (laughs) But if they're really authentic about that inspiration and that motivation, then maybe that's kind of underlying some of this. I agree with that. I would also say the reason that he comes to mind and Chariot comes to mind is Chariot was a pretty traditional kind of transportation service that you saw on the streets. None of their investors were explicitly impact investors And he never went around self-identifying as impact. But there is no doubt in my mind that his reason for being and for doing it was he had experienced that pain point. And he thought his service really enhanced the quality of life for city residents. Okay. And how about in the area of fundraising? Do you think having a social mission or a personal passion for addressing a big challenge of the world is helpful for fundraising? It makes me really sad to say this because I think there are so many advantages that impact or mission-driven founders can have. But unfortunately, I just think fundraising is not there yet. And a lot of the reason is because of what we talked about earlier, which is for a long time, I think mission and impact were equivalent or seen as equivalent to having concessionary returns. So Mm -hmm. people have their big bucket of investment money, and then they have a small bucket of do-goodery money. And that do-goodery money tends to be much smaller. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You look at the stats and trends around VC funding more broadly, and every year seems to be a new record. And so self-identifying in the smaller money bucket I think is a losing value proposition Mm -hmm. for most of these companies. Mm -hmm. I think they can go out there and clearly state their mission, why they're doing what they're doing, why they have the team to win, why this is a huge market opportunity. But I think going in there and beating your chest around, oh, we're impact, we're so great. I don't think that writes the checks. What we always tell our companies as they're fundraising is, you know, you go out there, you be authentic about your story, your mission, why you're trying to do what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, if you overplay your hand on the impact side, you're essentially putting yourself in a smaller bucket of capital and that's to no one's advantage. 
I think what happens is people tell their story and if you're authentic and genuine and it resonates with people, that can be very powerful. Mm -hmm. But many of those people don't need to be impact investors. You know, it's so funny. We'll meet with startups sometime and they'll, they'll say, oh, we might not be a great fit for you because of X, Y, or Z reason. Right. And I don't know where they come up with these X, Y, or Z reasons, but don't ever select yourself out. Right. Anybody with money, you should be approaching <laughs> and telling them right. your story. And if they're not writing a check, maybe they know somebody else who will write a check because they care about you know, breastfeeding moms. They care about micromobility. Right. They care about your new transportation solution. Your advice for them would be don't narrow the universe. Don't narrow the universe. pitch yourself how? Pitch yourself authentically, passionately. Tell a really compelling and concise vision of the mm -hmm. future and why you're the team to get to that future. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, ask everybody for money. You know, it's so funny. A lot of people, they don't realize that even for the most, you know, hot deals, attractive startups, you have to talk to a lot of investors to get to the yes. You will always experience no's. No matter right. how great, compelling, billion-dollar company written all over you, you will have to get some rejections. And so my advice is always tell your story authentically. It will resonate with some, maybe not others, but do not self-select people out because you never know who your message and story will resonate with. So let's talk about your current focus. What are you most excited about now in the future of cities and what are you looking for? Most excited about? So, you know, it's interesting. We have a number of, I would say, verticals that we're interested in, but what we found is pre-prescribing verticals hasn't been super successful for us so far. Mm -hmm. What we really like, again, are these bottoms-up solutions. So an example I can give, we supported an early-stage founder who was really passionate about water and water utility management. Mm -hmm. And these aren't pre-prescribed verticals or areas that we could have anticipated. Right. But then once somebody comes in yeah. with a compelling story, vision, and plan that really changes the way that we think about it. And so I guess we try not to be too top down about it. We really are looking for these entrepreneurs who are really motivated to solve a pain point in their cities. And finally, if you had to state your own personal mission, what is it? What drives you? So what drives me is finding startups that really are transforming our cities. We kind of wear it in our name and on our sleeve, but urban innovation is what kind of gets us motivated day in, day out. I do believe urbanization is one of the most catalytic trends of our time. 81% of Americans live in and around cities. The world will be two-thirds urbanized by the year 2050. These trends are just transformative, and we can see what happens to the strain in our cities as a result. Transit gets more congested, lack of access to affordable housing, strain on energy and natural resources. I think that there are huge market opportunities and just given the innovation and I think scrappiness of so many entrepreneurs, I think we are only touching like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to solutions for our cities. There are already a number of really big startups in this space. Uh, so, you know, ride sharing has transformed our cities, Uber and Lyft. Mm -hmm. um, in the housing space, Airbnb has really transformed mm -hmm what it means to live and rent out your apartment in cities. And so I think we are going to experience an explosion in the next two, three decades, and we hope to be at the forefront of it. Okay, thank you, Julie. Julie Lean, Managing Partner and Co-Founder, Urban Innovation Fund. 
on a mission to find startups that are transforming our cities. Thanks for coming in, Julie. Thanks for listening to Mission Driven. To find out more about Better Ventures, visit us at better.vc or on Twitter at Better Ventures.